Hello, everyone, and welcome back for another edition of the Streamtime Podcast. In case you're new to joining us, my name is Chris Stone. I'm the Senior Content Manager at Sports Pro Media. Joined, as always, by our CEO at Sports Pro, Nick Meacham. How's it going today, Nick? How was your weekend? Yeah, not too bad. Uh, kept myself, you know, pretty out of, out of trouble and, and uh, just got fresh out of reading 114 pages of company reports, uh, which... Uh, isn't exciting for many people and wasn't really that exciting for me but uh it's obviously one of the things we'll be talking about shortly yeah it sounds very exciting i'll admit nick i'm still in a bit of a a football hangover and it's not because of the team that i promise i won't mention again at least until the kickoff of next season but just simply (laughs) so much of my sports schedule was based around the nfl and after the super bowl there's always this weird thing of what i do on sundays you know there's there's no games, there's no talk of fantasy football, all the different you know, YouTube content that I would consume throughout the week, preparing my lineups, any potential bets. So I have to admit, Nick, I am still trying to, I'm struggling to get into a new schedule without it. Well, well there's nothing that could fill that gap more of being able to watch football than to be able to coach football, which is uh, is uh, your other, other gig on the side. So I'm sure uh, that hopefully fills some of the void that you're missing. Yes, for anyone that truly is concerned about me, don't worry. There's still plenty of football in my life. Um, Now, one thing, Nick, I do want to talk about before we go into it is I just want to take a moment to thank everyone who's provided feedback on the Streamtime podcast. Uh, I was on a couple of phone calls last week um, where people had gone out of their way to say they had enjoyed the podcast. I know, Nick, you'd received a couple emails um, that came in with some unsolicited appreciation of people just dropping a line at the bottom of the email saying they had enjoyed it. So, I think uh, I probably speak for both of us when I just want to express our gratitude for anyone that's out there listening and who's said that they've enjoyed it. Um, I also know if you have any feedback, if there's any potential guests you want to hear from, any topics you want to hear from, please do feel free to reach out. Um, We're both on LinkedIn. Uh, We're also both pretty active on Twitter as well. My handle being uh, at SportsProChris1, and you can find Nick at SportsProNick. Um, like I said, Nick, I probably speak for both of us, but I don't know if you want to add on to that at all. Share some of the love with the, the fans. <laughs> don't know about that, but um, no, it's been really good, uh, really positive, especially when it's from people you've never engaged with before, and it sort of starts you start getting a sense of um, when you start a, a podcast that you don't know who's listening to it. That's one of the challenges in um, the audio space is to understand your audience. And so it's really nice that we do get to hear from some of those people and, and get feedback solicited or unsolicited, depending on where it is coming from. So, uh, yeah, thanks for everyone so far. Um, and obviously if there's any thoughts, good or bad, uh, ideas, please yeah, don't be afraid to, well, mainly good, uh, ideally, um, but please don't be afraid to, to reach out to Chris or I, and we'll, um, we'll, um, look forward to hearing from you. Yeah. Now, speaking of Twitter though, Nick, one of the things that you're, you're known to do is get your thread emoji out and Typically, it seems like late in the week or on the weekends, you know, deep dive into things. You sort of mentioned you'd spent some time going through uh, hundreds of pages of paperwork, looking at different numbers. And, you know, within the streaming space, obviously, DAZN is looked at as one of these new potential, well, new is not the correct word to say it, but they are a potential disruptor in the marketplace. And once again, you did one of your your patented threads deep diving into DAZN. I think perhaps it, we definitely need to elaborate on some of the things that we came across in that, you know, what did you see? And then perhaps trying to do a little bit of forecasting for what that all means. Yeah, I didn't really mean to do it, but I kind of got started and I got stuck in this sort of 
a black hole of pages of company accounts and uh, uh, 114 pages in total. Um, and those accounts for DAZN were to, to the end of 2020. So, you know, 14 months ago now. Um, so not necessarily an accurate read on where they are today, given it was you know right in the heart of the pandemic. But the things I wanted to sort of get my head around really were what were they sort of exp- they were spending on their rights acquisition and also where their other costs came from, a bit of a better understanding also around their matchroom relationship. Um, and also the the parent company has had uh, investments in a bunch of biz- secondary businesses um, which they've over this period uh, sold. I was just curious to see if there's any more information in there. And so spent a bit of time looking into the numbers and getting a better sense of, of what was going on there. And now I guess that's a nice little cliffhanger, but what were the numbers that stuck out to you? You know, if you, if you read over a hundred pages, you know, are there a handful of things, a few things that, you know, really struck you as like, wow, um, that's, that's really shocking. Yeah, there's, I mean, there's a quite a few things in there. I'll, I'll go with the, the sort of the easy ones, the obvious ones is they, they, over that period of time. So towards the end of 2020, they, had 1.3 billion loss on 872 million revenue. And look, for anyone running a business, um, it's always concerning when a business loses more than its total revenue. Um, But as I said, it is caveated on revenues would have naturally dried up over that period because of the pandemic impact on subscriptions and so forth. Um, But there were some interesting numbers underneath that. So of the 872 million revenue, um, 724 of that is what they classify as OTT related. And that's actually up 20% year on year, which is which is quite impressive, again, given the situation uh, there um, in terms of timing. And a further 100 million of uh, the total revenue was generated from its zone media business, which is from what I understand is mainly from their ad inventory um, that they run on their own platforms. So they've run up, they've set up like a subsidiary business that manages all their programmatic advertising, and and, and it, it powers all that across um, all their various uh, channels. So, um, so some, so good to see some growth on the revenue side. And I think if when we get to the next twelve months, you will see, you would hope to see that number jump massively. Uh, and and finally, or not or finally, but in addition to that. Um, the, the amount of money they spent on rights fees was quite interesting. Um, they spent over $1.2 billion in rights fees in a year, but with next to no sports being broadcast for a good chunk of that. Um, that's quite a big number. And I think if I remember correctly, that was um, a little bit down from the year before, but it's still a, a, the majority of what they were paying in years gone by. Um, and worth noting, they also have $3.5 billion in rights fees committed to the end of 2028 at the time of those accounts. Uh, and one of, one of the other things that really stood out for me was, again, in a pandemic year, yet their staff and production costs went up over that period, which for me just blows my mind. The only thing I can think of was that perhaps they were investing heavily into the original programming side. And so they had to invest in resource uh, and production of that um, through the year. Uh, but pretty baffling when you're not actually broadcasting nearly the amount of events you would normally do. And for what it's worth, uh, Design has about 2,500 employees uh, on the books. So 
just gives a bit of a sense of scale for the business when you you look at it that way. Yeah, very interesting. Yeah, I think you did point it out. It the number was just slightly down in terms of money spent on rights compared to 2019, but obviously still a very significant number when there weren't actually any sports being played at all. Um, you know, from this, you know, you, we talked about you know this is from 2020, but are there, what are there any particular conclusions? You know, elsewhere, you know, you mentioned possibly some of these numbers might be reflected in a greater emphasis on original content. But, you know, based on that spending, a lot of that would probably would have been committed before too much knowledge that there'd be a global pandemic. So is there any conclusions you can draw that maybe the direction they were headed? Yeah, look, again, it's really hard to know how that budget is, how that how that cost is being allocated um, in the budget there. Um, and obviously, as I said, this is at the worst possible time to measure a business coming uh, in the heart of a pandemic. Um, but I do fundamentally think that uh, there's always been concerns around the, the design uh, sort of business model. And quite frankly, they're just not generating enough revenue, anywhere near enough revenue for this model to feel like it's, it's, it's where it needs to be. They have got a long way to go to see if they can get themselves into a position that is truly sustainable. They are very fortunate. They have a billionaire backing them. Without Access Industries and Len Blavatnik um, funding them to the, the tune of, I think it's something like $4.3 billion of total investment, which has now been turned into shares or written off uh, as in the recent numbers that have been announced. Without that, they would be in big trouble. And I do think what they're suffering from a little bit is there was in the industry, there was kind of a, a sense that, okay, the world is going to shift to streaming products. You need to be a first mover here. You need to be there. And as the world starts transitioning, you'll be there to sort of lap everyone up and, uh, and, and grow and thrive as a result of that. The problem is that the, the world hasn't moved as quickly as perhaps DAZN needed. Uh, they haven't seen the shift of consumption at the rate they, they wanted it to. And they haven't been able to secure some of the premium rights they were expecting. If you, you rewind the clock back um, you know, back a few years ago, the talk was, are they going to be a player in the US for some of the premium sports rights? Are they going to be going for premium rights in markets like the UK? They have won some premium rights in markets like Germany, but to be positioning themselves to really cover the, the these incredible costs that they are they are produce, they are um, suffering through. Um, yeah, they have a lot of work to do to generate the revenue that they need to to make that business viable. Um, so that's really the thing that sort of stood out for me. The next twelve months, uh, obviously twenty twenty one, the calendar year was a year where we saw sports almost back to capacity, uh, and so we will get a much much better sense of where they actually are at when the next year's calendar number um, numbers come out. But until then. I think we have to remain skeptical until we start seeing some of those numbers um, come through. So you touched on a couple of things there, the latter being around the acquisition of premium rights. And I want to come back to that with a lens potentially talking about the BT discovery. But you also talked about the investors sort of bankrolling to zone. And the, I guess the question I would have, and this might be an oversimplification of it, but for me, investing to some degree is a little bit like gambling. You're putting money down in the hope that you're going to get more money back than you put in. Now, we this isn't necessarily the first time we've talked about DAZN having some rocky numbers coming out. What is it that investors are expecting to get back? At some point, if you're putting in all this money, what, what are they seeing 
what's the time frame for which they might be expecting to see a return? You know, I, I guess that's the question to me is what's the bet that they're trying to make uh, and what are they getting back from it? Well, yeah, it's, it's a really good question. And for those that don't know, most of DAZN's funding comes from Len Blavatnik, who I mentioned earlier, who is one of the richest uh, men in the UK, uh, has been invested into this from the, from, from the beginning. Um, and when these accounts actually came out, his investment in terms of the, the loans that he'd provided were about one and a half billion. As I said before, they're now at four and a half. So he's he's basically the primary person we need to be looking at this. Like what what's he doing? Why is he continuing to put the money down um, on the table for them to to be spending in this space? And I'm I'm pretty confident that I haven't seen anything for the last financial year that's just gone, uh, the last calendar year. But I'm pretty confident they have seen a massive bump um, after these numbers were produced. But it's a, it's a punt. It's a bet. You know, he's gambling that this is the home run platform of choice for sports consumption, you know, five years from now, 10 years from now. And what was really interesting looking through the company's uh, accounts was the narrative or the way they described um, Axis Industries investment into it and support of, of DAZN. It kind of, I don't know, it's hard to tell whether there's much to read into it, but it felt like they haven't got a long runway. They keep the gig given sort of 12 months at a time to here's a bit more money, go prove yourself. Here's a bit more money, go prove yourself. And um, but at any stage, if Axis Industries decided to pull the pin on this investment, I don't know how they would keep functioning in that, in that, in that way. At the moment, the reason Blavatniks put the money, put the money down, put more money down and and help them basically write off the debt. Is he's all in? He's all in. You're you're when you're a few, this this many billions in. Like, um, you know, what's a few more to throw on the table just to make sure you keep things moving in the right the right direction? Otherwise, the other the other alternative is him writing off that money completely, um, and that just doesn't really seem like a viable option this stage. I don't think they're in a. I, it's, to be clear, as I said, these numbers paint a pretty ugly picture. One point, uh, what was a one point three billion loss in one year? It's a big number. It was one point four the year before. But I do think the next year's numbers will show us some pretty impressive growth because this is also aligned with when they went global with their, with their offering. And then, so that's going to have an impact, no doubt. Um, but it's still not clear cut what the future holds for DAZN. Yeah, I mean, even talking about the future, this now kind of, I think, brings us into that next point I wanted to talk about around the premium rights, but, you know, specifically perhaps the example of the BT Sports situation with Discovery and where DAZN falls into that. So given some of what we've talked about here not being so positive, you know, what what's the further ramifications of that not necessarily going in their favor? Yeah, I mean, the simplest way to look at it, and I... um had a, a Twitter sort of conversation with uh, Patrick Craig, who's an advisor in the space as well. And he mentioned this and it's a really clear, simple line. But if you're a business like they are, you need a business that's generating revenue, generating cash flow. And so they need more premium rights to generate more cash flow, even if they're losing, uh, losing on those rights. Um, and so by acquiring some of those BT Sport assets that they had, it would have massively helped on the cash flow side. Uh, and then that's when the optimization side comes in down the line to try and become profitable. Um, but they don't have that. You know, generating uh, 800 odd million of total revenue isn't really enough at the, the losses that they're making. Um, and without that acquisition, we talked a bit about it before, a bit about it before. Um, 
they will have to sit basically in limbo within the UK for the next couple of years until the next set of premium rights comes up. And again, no guarantee that they will win those. And that is fundamentally the problem with building a media business around sports rights. You've got a window of time and in that next window of time, you've got to bid again and bid again and you have no guarantees on the long-term viability of your business. And we've seen that reflected in what's happened in the stock market around a lot of the other major media businesses in, uh, in the market. There's, there's less security for the growth of a business and without those BT assets, BT sport assets, then they're not going to be able to grow in the UK and it was a core focus for them. So it does hurt. Um, and I don't really know where they will draw the more attention to. I've heard that in the US, they burnt some bridges with some of the major sports properties out there because they held um, some of their payments back um, during the pandemic in terms of media rights. So that makes it all that much harder if you've burnt some bridges there to try and be a legitimate player in the US. And that might be one of the reasons they announced that they focus on other markets. Maybe that market isn't ready for DAZN to come into. So yeah, not a good situation to be in, particularly in the UK. Yeah, well, so going forward, you know, we're talking about how do you make more revenue? And, you know, I think I read earlier in the year, uh, the chairman, Kevin Mayer, mentioned comments around expanding into betting. Um, I think he even mentioned NFTs, but that just could be a result of everybody these days mentions NFTs as a way to make money, uh, whether that's serious or not. It's just something you say and everyone's like, oh, yeah, it makes sense in 2022. You know, what else can they be looking at? You know, is that a, a an ongoing growth of their relationship with Matchroom? Is it looking at different markets, different rights? Um, is it different monetization models? You know, how do they how do they correct or make the best of the situation they're in? Well, look, I think all those things you mentioned are possible to have incremental impact. Um, I also think the investment into original programming is an interesting thing to watch because if they hit a few home runs there, it can pay dividends. Um, but it's also a costly exercise to be in the original programming space if you're looking to sell those to other distributors and other platforms. Um, one I think is, that is very interesting is one of the messages they came out with when they first launched is that they will not have a pay, pay-per-view model for any of their fight sports. And obviously fight sports is an industry that has been built on pay-per-view. Uh, and I even give you a quote here from their website, uh, which was, do I have to pay extra for premium content? Nope. Your monthly sponsor, your monthly subscription fee is all you pay. Right. Well, as of uh, as of pretty recently, that has actually changed. They have now said, uh, and this is actually another quote from their Twitter account, um, which says, "The original sentiment around pay per view as a default being a broken model in boxing is somewhat somewhere something we stand by for the very occasional events such as such as this that necessitate pay per view." whatever that means, we now have the flexibility to explore fighters, mega fights, and innovative partnerships previously impossible. Well, I'll tell you what that really means. That really means that it wasn't working and they were actually, they've actually haven't got the fights uh, that that sort of warrant for people to be subscribed 12 months uh, around the year. And it wasn't a viable model for them to be working on. So they have to, they had to pivot the model. They had to find out how they can generate more revenue. Um, and they've now shifted this model as a result. Fans aren't happy about it, but they're still probably going to get a better deal than they were in the old school uh, pay-per-view model. Um, and look, that may have a measurable impact um, because you know you can really drive people to convert around these events. They will make a lot more money around those events. Um, but 
I, outside of that, everything else is going to be fairly incremental in how it drives revenue, in my opinion. Yeah, I think uh, it's a, maybe it's an expression that exists, you know, on this side of the Atlantic as well. But back in America, the expression is money talks and bullshit walks. So maybe that whole stance on pay-per-view is kind of where we got with that one. If there's money to be made, they'll figure it out. Yeah, time will tell. Absolutely. Well, Nick, I know we could talk about DAZN for much longer than that, but we do have an exciting interview lined up after this with WSC. Um, I could say a little bit, but I know you're the one that did the interview. So I'll let you kick that off and let people know what's in store. No worries. Well, look, uh, I've interviewed the CEO of WSE, Daniel Schickman, and it's great timing, actually, given they're fresh off a $100 million fundraise. And that's $100 million cash. So just put that in perspective, that probably values their business in getting closer to the magical billion number. Um, but now, look, we all know that highlights and clips are sitting at the heart of the way people consume sports. And that's where WC really fits in, right in the middle of helping publishers, broadcasters, content teams create content and doing it all through an AI tool that they've created themselves. Uh, and for those that don't know WC, it's a business that actually started out in Israel, uh, fairly quietly built a portfolio of something like uh, over 200 clients. Uh, and it's a pretty cool story because it's just basically a story about a couple of mates who love sports, work together to create something pretty special. And it's basically transformed the entire, tr transformed the way the industry works completely around the, the highlights and short form uh, space. And if you talk to anyone who works with them in the industry, they can't praise them enough. Um, so look, it's a really interesting insight into what they've done, their journey, how they're impacting the industry. Uh, Daniel's got a great, great energy and you can see he's still really, um, energized by what he's doing and what they're building. And they've got some pretty ambitious plans, which he digs into. Um, so look, it's really worth a listen. Uh, and I think you'll really enjoy it. But um, I think that's probably enough of me uh, talking about Daniel. And I'll hand it over to me talking to Daniel about WSC Sports. So Daniel, when someone mentions WSC to me, I immediately think AI-powered highlights and clipping. I actually remember the first time I saw WC in action, um, which showed, someone showed the ability for the clipping of highlights, particularly around the NBA. And immediately I thought that looks pretty cool. That was about eight years ago, if I remember correctly. A lot's happened since then. Uh, and I actually think it's one of the first times I saw sports a sports tech uh, coming, a new sports tech initiative coming into the market and going, okay, I can see where this fits and what problems it's solving. Um, so tell me, tell, and tell the people who are listening, what is WSC exactly? What what are some of the nuts and bolts, and 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 what actually are you problem solving? I suppose. Yeah, big question. So basically, WSC Sports, uh, we're an Israeli-based company. Uh, and basically, we developed a platform that can automatically and in real time generate personalized and customized sports videos. We're a B2B company, so we work with media right owners, whether it's leagues, broadcasters, teams, publishers, to really help them to maximize uh, their video content and how they can generate new revenue streams. Uh, and in, in high-level view of what we do, basically, we work with these media right owners. We ingest live streams into our platform. Everything is cloud-based. 
And then we have an engine that basically analyzes the live stream and tries to understand what happens in each and every second of the competition. So whether it's a touchdown, an ace, goal, commercial, everything that is happening, we try to uh, understand what are the right timings, how exciting it is, uh, how how relevant it is, and build like a huge, uh, let's call it database of events. And then our clients have an interface where they can automatically generate content. They can set rules and thresholds and automatically generate any type of content and send it to any platform, whether it's social, digital, partners. Um, and yeah, we're working with more than 200 clients worldwide, including uh, big names like the NBA, ESPN, PGA, Bundesliga. You know, as a sports fan, it's still amazing uh, for me to, to know we're working with these guys. And every time I go into their office, I'm, I'm really excited. Um, yeah, and uh, like you said, it's been uh, eight years and a bit more, and uh, we just uh, feel we're in the beginning. So it's fun. Um, so you talked about 200 clients, and they're across uh, a number of sports, um, from what I understand. Talk us through what some of those sports are, and I guess also how how quickly can you adapt into other sports? Is it something you can flick a switch, or does it take a lot of development? What Just talk us through that part. So right now, we support a nice round number, actually, of 20 different sports, and you can start with the obvious ones, you know, uh, football, American football, basketball, uh, baseball, etc., and go all the way to MMA and ski and surfing. Uh, and as to your second question in terms of, of timing, so basically, at the end of the day, uh, unfortunately, in, there is no magic in life and everything. Uh, you need to train the neural networks to really understand a specific sport, the nuances, A, in analyzing, understanding what is interesting, what is not interesting, but also the second part of what is an interesting story to tell, what is a game highlight or a player highlight or a weekly highlight, or and depends on the sport. Uh, so these are things that we need to adapt for each and every sport. Uh, and then in terms of the timing, it's, it's a tricky question because if there's a sport which is similar to another sport, for example, baseball and cricket are somewhat similar, they're very structured, the game looks somewhat, somewhat similar, so it's easier to adapt it. But if you look at a whole new sport, which was car racing at then, then it's a whole new thing. And then you come to the R&D and the product people and just pray and ask them to do it as fast <laughs> as possible. And the algo teams, uh, so it, it really differs. But but if it's a sport that is not that different from other others, it takes us usually let's say six to eight weeks to get something out there, which wow. is very quick if the if the platform is is built the right way and the sport is similar. And then once it's out there and running, we continue to collect data and improve it for additional, uh, let's say again six to eight weeks. And then we're we're really confident in what we have. If it's a new sport, new algorithms, everything from scratch, then it can take months, six months, it depends on the sport. I remember talking to the PGA Tour actually about this a while ago. I think it was the PGA Tour. And they were just talking about the fact that the speed of, um, I guess, developing the clips is what really stands out. But also you take away the, the heavy lifting of the editorial production team to actually sift through and find all these different clips and, and get that stuff going. That seems to be the, the magic source here is you're effectively um, taking away a lot of the workload that sits on, uh, used to sit, in the hands of individuals to manually go through video to create these clips, you guys can do it in, in pretty rapid speed. I'm curious how, if someone says, okay, I want this clip to be created, uh, how long, how quickly do you actually have it? Cause you said they're, they're feeding in the live stream as it's happening. So what's the workflow I suppose they're looking like. So once we ingest the stream, the analysis is being done in, uh, in real time or called near real time. So basically once something happened in the feed, after it depends on the sport, but 40 to 60 seconds after that, it's already available as a separate MP4 file that they can use. And everything, uh, as you said, it's searchable and they can really easily extract everything they can. 
Uh, they can also set rules and thresholds so they don't need even to necessarily sit and manually sift through the content. They can go and say whenever an interesting event happens because we rate every play from one star to five stars. So they can set a rule, for example, whenever an event which is four star or five star is happening, automatically publish it to our app in vertical format. And that's it. And that will automatically be generated and published so they can choose what the workflow is. And, and exactly as you said earlier, in the end of the day, we think uh, people can tell stories in, in a great way, but we want to enable the sports organization to tell stories because the sports fan, that's what we want to see. We want to see like the cool stories and the behind the scenes and, and more, more uh, interesting uh, content. So we help them to really uh, not focus on the, let's call it day-to-day -day content, the game highlights, the player highlights, which we think machines can do really well. And, and we're continuing to improve it all the time, obviously, and let them focus on, on unique storytelling and give other angles of the sport because that's how fans really get exposed to the sport. They really start loving it. And then they'll follow and watch the games, watch other content, and be exposed to, to the entire experience. Cool. And so finally, on the product side a little bit more, what do you have specific products um, that you're offering there? Or is it kind of you work with the client to set up a suite of uh, automations that can do um, what you've just described? Mm -hmm. So we have uh, basically we're a platform company. We have one platform. The platform has uh, different capabilities. Uh, and as I mentioned earlier, and, and then the, the clients are getting the, the same platform with the with the flags on and off on specific features that they need or don't need. But we we're building one platform to support the entire sports ecosystem. Uh, and then there are different features and modules within the platform, and we'll not get too deep into it. But for example, one of them is the rules engine that you can define the rules. The second is the, the different types of content that are going to be created. Is it going to be a video? What's going to be the ratio? Is it a vertical video? What is the format? Is it a GIF? Is it a video? Is it a story uh, format? The another module where it's going to be published to, only to a website or app, or is it integration to a Google search or to sponsors? Or So there are a lot of, uh, in the workflow itself, there are a lot of different uh, options, but in the end of the day, it's one platform that we're working, the, the R&D here in the company is half of the size of the company. Uh, we're focusing a lot on making sure the platform can support as many use cases of workflow as possible. And once we hear something new from one client, it's automatically being exposed to all of our other clients so they can use it as well. And so it really helps to also push the sport in this racing, or hope, uh, forward. Um, interesting. And, and obviously, uh, we're coming off, uh, we're recording this um, sort of towards the end of February. And the uh, announcement, I think a week or two weeks ago, was you raised another round uh, of funding. Uh, I think the headline was, a hundred million series d fundraise um so and a lot of the the people that have invested in that from what i can recall are people that have already been investing with you in previous series which is obviously a great sense of validation of where you guys are going um firstly i'm just curious i know you can't give all the, the full complete details but i'm curious when we see the headline of 100 million there, is that 100 million in on capital raise or is that the valuation of the business what do you, what's that number mean i guess to you no, 100 million is the capital uh, capital raise and the valuation, obviously, of a private company, but is uh, much higher uh, than that. Good, good. So, okay, so you guys are, are obviously tracking really well there. And I, I saw some of the plans that you're looking to roll out as a result of this new capital raise. Um, a pretty significant amount, as we've just described, but included new staff. Uh, I think it was something like 150 new staff was listed on, on there. Uh, big plans to grow and accelerate now, probably as things have come back to normal in a lot of markets now, there's a lot of excitement to, to push forward in the media space and also looking at new territories. Because obviously, whilst you guys do have 200 clients, which is a, a pretty massive number, 
I'm guessing that's only scratching the surface because of the you, know, you can obviously work with rights holders and broadcasters and media companies, I guess, who um, publishers who have rights uh, to play with uh, as well. Uh, so just talk us through what are some of those plans now with this new capital raise that you are looking to roll out with WSE? Yeah, so, so the company has been growing really fast in the last few years. A uh, number of clients, sports we support, different products, different use cases. And I, I think generally our impact in the sports industry. And I think we're in a very unique position uh, to continue and grow and work together uh, with our clients and, and basically change or, or adapt to how sports broadcasters and teams and everything is, ch is changing around us. Uh, so, so the fundraising uh, was has two main, uh, I think, aims. One is to continue and grow and do what we do really well. And like you've said, growing more geographies, support more sports, um, more use cases, and, and grow the platform and just continue to do that. And, but, and so, so that's one thing. And we know that we're doing well and our clients, we're working with them really closely uh, and, and continue to do that. The second part is look at what's next and how sport is going to look like uh, in the future, not far future, two, three years from now, things that are already happening. And, and we can talk about it maybe, but, but trends that we see in the OTT space and sports betting space and, and the NFT or Web3 or, or whatever buzzword you want to use and, and all the challenges that are, that are happening. Uh, and we think we can be a, a very important role in how that happens. In the end of the day, we are working, like we said, with more than 200 clients globally. Most of the sports content is running through our platform and we know what works well, what doesn't work well, and we can really work together with the ecosystem to go and build uh, the next generation of, of products and, and fan experiences and each of these verticals and everything is a vertical, OTT is a vertical, betting is a vertical uh, and, and everything uh, on that end. So we're focusing on different verticals right now to, to continue and grow and help our clients to just provide a better experience to their fans and, and find new revenue streams because the, the market is just, is just different than from what it used to be a few years ago in terms of the economy of how everything works in the sports industry. Yeah, the um, it's interesting you mentioned the the buzzwords or the different the new things that are hot right now, Web three, NFTs, and other blockchain based uh, technologies. Um, and I'm curious on the NFT side, that is something uh, I was going to raise with you. Um, what exactly are you seeing, sort of the use case of WSE in that instance? Is it akin to what you see with, I guess, like the Dapper Labs, a Top Shot model, where you see those 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 clips turning into a collectible, or are you guys working with, looking to work with them, or create your own form of NFT? So, so in the end of the day, we think uh, we can be a very important engine in the economy of NFT. We're still uh, figuring out together with our client what should be the right model and, and what can be sustainable. Uh, and, and not just people, you know, they, they can buy the NFTs, but if they cannot use it in, in a smart way, it cannot give them to be a part of something bigger, uh, then I think that's going to be problematic. And we see it regardless of sports. We see it in the NFT market. That's uh, where, where everything is going. And to be, I don't like the, the word, but I'll use it kind of like the utility uh, that once you have it. So that's what we're working. And I think the fact that, as I've said it earlier, uh, that, that all of the content goes through us and we can create it in real time and automate it and really understand what people want to see and make it available and remove it uh, gives us a lot of flexibility on what we can offer uh, the leaks so they can offer to their fans in terms of NFT. And if something, imagine a goal of Messi just happened and you can right away uh, have it minted and, and then you can use it for various applications, uh, then we think there is a lot of uh, interesting use cases there. And that's something, as I've said, we're now exploring with others uh, and I'll be happy to share it maybe in, in a few months. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. I'm just curious also with you guys looking to expand the offering there, 
Do you foresee that um, there'd be a, a possibility of you guys actually looking to go into the acquisition side and bringing in other technology businesses into the mix? Or you've got a big R&D team and it's mainly just about building in-house? Mm-hmm. No, so so that's definitely an option. Uh, we, we didn't raise the money to specifically go and do it. But that, when we look at the market, we're always looking at what is miss, what is the missing piece and also what is missing in terms of the DNA of the company. We know they were a company that knows how to build a good technology platform, B2B. And sometimes there are things that are more about measurement, more about direct to fan and experiences that is not part of our DNA. Uh, and sometimes a lot of the things are not just technology or product, it's also DNA and how you look at things. Uh, so I think uh, some of the missing parts there can be very relevant of, for us. And I'm not saying we're going to do something uh, in the next month, two or three, but that's um, certainly uh, a firepower that we added and a capability that, that we we did the fundraise to be able to do it in case we think it's uh, it's relevant. Uh, and at the end of the day, like I think I'm repeating myself, but at the end of the day, it's something that we talk to our clients all the time. We hear from them and we ask them, what else do you want to see from WC? What do you expect to get from your business? And how we can help you. In the end of the day, it's it's worth nothing if they don't get the value, uh, and that's what helps us to really connect the dots and understand what we think is missing and critical to to the business. So, talk us through. I'm just curious on the business model that you guys roll out and use with clients, because you've got clients that are the biggest uh, media businesses in the world, and you've also got the the sort of tier two, tier three sports and media properties that also work. And uh, give us a sense of like, how do you guys? How do you guys effectively make money in this situation? What's the what's the model that you you implement? Is it the number of clips made? Is it the because you guys have to put all, all this work into to creating the the dashboard? I'm sure it's not as simple as that, but just talk us through what the model is. So so as I mentioned earlier, in the other day we're a platform company. Uh, so our main model is a, is a, is a yearly service fee. So when we work with our clients, usually we we know how many games they have in, or how many leagues they cover. If it's a broadcaster, so it's easy to know what the general expected scope that we need to cover is. Uh, so our pricing is basically uh, modeled on three things. One is the amount of streams that we need to analyze. That's a main cost for our servers and the cloud providers. Uh, so that's one thing. Second is the different use cases they're going to use the platform for, uh, whether it's just uh, social media and their website, or do they now need to integrate with a lot of other places with different use cases and different formats and different things that they need. And the third is the different packages they they, uh, they need from our product. Do they need a special dedicated graphics a package that we have or they don't need it? Do they need automated cropping or they don't need it? So we have different. So once you factor everything, the basic model is a yearly fee. Usually it's a multi-year deal. Uh, and obviously because the exposure use cases, the amount of games are different from very big leagues to very small leagues, then the price uh, changes accordingly. Uh, and uh, so far, we've done a very good job in in, uh, in working with our clients. We have a very low churn rate. Once we start working with a client, uh, we're uh, we're basically growing with them year over year. And, and again, I think that's the main thing. We need to understand that we are trying to help these guys. Uh, it's not about us. So that's what we're focusing on, making sure we bring value. And it's important to listen to your clients in this instance because, well, the industry is evolving really quickly um, and the way sports is consumed is evolving really quickly. I mean, even the value of highlights have been going up and up in terms of the importance, not just in necessarily the, the commercialization, but just the value it's bringing to building an audience and fan base um, for the sports properties in there. I mean, even uh, as someone who lives in the UK, I'm a fan of various US sports, um, highlights are a huge part of 
the way I consume sports, it's actually the primary way I consume a lot of the US sports in a lot of instances. I'm just curious, are there any, um, you know, what's your take, I guess, on, on that growing value of highlights uh, and short form uh, in the way sports is being consumed? Yeah, so, so I think I agree with you. We're seeing a, a big change in the sports industry and, how, and, and the fan behavior in the last few years. Uh, like I said, fans consume the content differently. The younger generations, which Nick, it's not you and me, unfortunately, uh, they, they watch <laughs> less uh, live games, they watch less full games, and they get updated from short-form content, and they do it on, on various formats and various platforms. And, and we all read the same researches that show that, you know, that things are very different from what it used to be. And I think it means that media right owners, they have to adapt. And we see that one of the of the main effect of these consumption habits are the increased number of cord cutters. And, and it's super important to understand that because everyone needs to understand that, that people that are paying for cable or satellite, it's one of the most important sources of revenue uh, for the industry. And, and what it, that, that is what actually enables broadcasters to go and pay higher uh, fees for media rights. And that's how the entire industry is actually working. And now that we see that these numbers are, are declining for almost 10 years now, almost half of the uh, people that have subscription to cable satellite uh, like don't have it anymore. It means that major revenue source is getting hurt. And, and, and that means that media right owners and broadcasters are now looking for a new way to diversify the revenue streams from fans. And, and they're becoming much more similar to like internet companies. It means they need to be much smarter in knowing the users how to acquire them, how to retain them, how to uh, how to monetize them, and, and there are several ways uh, that, that we mentioned earlier. Like having an OTT platform is one way, and you start charging subscription fee, but then you will never have the same reach as a cable or a satellite uh, company. So it means that you need to to be smarter and then incorporate uh, to to that sports betting or NFT or affiliation or AVOD or fast channels and. And, and microtransactions, so a lot of things that, that the industry is changing, it's becoming much more, uh, I think, smarter, much more sophisticated, and it has to be that way if it wants to survive. So so if I go back to your question, I think that we, as we see these shifts in the sports market, we're building solutions that are based on short-form content that is created in real time to really enable uh, the the... The, these broadcasters and media right owners to acquire the users, to retain them, and find new revenue streams. And we think short-form content is, is super uh, important in, in doing that. So, and when we talk about highlights, we typically think uh, social media you know, is the primary vehicle for distribution and use of that and audience development. How much are you seeing of that happening in um, you know, content creation and that being developed and used in OTT platforms themselves directly, is that a, just a, a growing area or is it is it actually much further down the line than I would imagine in terms of sports and media businesses actually creating dedicated uh, highlights-based products um, purpose-built for the OTT itself? Yeah, so, so I think, as you said, social media was the start and everyone knows social for many years that, that everyone was pushing content to social media just to get the reach and it's, it's still going to happen happen a lot because that's where the eyeballs are but we're also seeing in the last couple of years all the ott providers are working really hard to to improve their vod uh offering we're seeing all the the different cable and satellite providers have uh, a advertising vod that they're investing a lot of money in, and that's a very fast growing segment we see they're building fast channels which are basically 24 7 channels that are uh advertising based growing across the board and you see a lot of acquisitions especially in the us uh doing that um so, so I think that everyone is trying to be a media company and, and provide the entire solution from live 
to non-live and just make people have the habit of getting back to the same place and watching content at the same place the way they want to. Um, so, so social media was definitely the start because that was the easiest, but now every, every broadcaster, media company, cable company is just trying to build their own assets so they can control it the best, they can collect user data and they can monetize it in the best way. Um, and it's a really fascinating space and, and a lot of things happening. One thing I, I think about when I, I, and I've thought about this from the beginning is because of the proliferation of highlights, uh, clips being so valuable to the way sports is being consumed, I've just always wondered whether B, going B to C for you guys is on the horizon. So uh, I think the main thing uh, in the end of the day in the sports market is media rights. Uh, and at the moment, we don't see ourselves owning specifically media rights or, or buying them or being, uh, we, we really like our position as like a B to B to C player that really working with the big brands, working with the sports organization, really working with them to go uh, and, and do that rather than, competing with them on the rights or doing that. And it's a whole different business, running a business, which is again, B2C and understanding that aspect is a whole different business. And we need to stay very focused on, on what we do well and obviously what we can improve on that aspect. Uh, so at the moment, it's not something we're, uh, we're looking after. The, your clients will breathe a sigh of relief hearing that, I think. Uh, <laughs> the, um, but one thing I am on, on the consumer side, again, I'm just wondering, are you guys doing anything at the moment to put the power of WSC in their hands, even if it's, say, in the media company's own platform to offer the ability to create their own sets of highlights clips. Because one thing I remember talking to a couple of people about this, and they're like, if I knew I could set up my own clips to get served, so I wake up in the morning and I have all the highlights from my favorite games just ready for me to watch, um, you know, custom to the player or custom to the style I like, I would I would pay a lot for that that sort of service is the, the feedback I'm, I've, I've heard. Uh, what are you guys doing on on that sort of uh, on that front? Mm -hmm. So so it depends on the media right owner and how much they want to expose uh, and give control to the fan. So two examples that I was thinking of. So one can be the NBA Facebook Messenger bot. That if you go to the NBA's Facebook page, there is a bot there that as a fan you can chat with the bot and then ask the bot, I want to see a clip of uh, LeBron James or Donovan Mitchell from the Jazz. Uh, and then if the bot asks you what exactly do you want to see. Uh, and then you can uh, reply and then you get content according to what you were asking to be created. And together with the NBA, the NBA defined what type of content and what options fans can choose, but fans can really go and choose and they get it like a one-to-one -one experience. Uh, so that's one implementation. Another implementation was with the PGA Tour. Uh, basically they had the player championship and they had every shot, uh, uh, more than 20,000 shots uh, uh, were filmed during the weekend. And our system analyzed each and every one of them. And as a fan, you can go into the app, you can follow a specific uh, player or a hole, whatever you want to see, and you get all of the clips on, on everything you wanted to, to watch. Uh, and, and maybe even a third example can be what we're doing with, uh, with YouTube TV, that as a fan, you go and watch a game on YouTube TV. It can be NFL or NBA, NHL, whatever. And you get like an interactive uh, view that you can follow specific players or follow specific plays or catch up to the highlight that everything that just happened. If you tuned in late to the game, you get a catch up for you to that point. So it really, and I think that's where the industry is going, regardless of WSC, really enabling fans to get content according to whatever they prefer, even without they going and choosing it actively. Because people in the other day, they are a bit lazy, I can say. Uh, you just want to lay down and, and lay back and just get a content that you're interested in and watch it. And I think that's where the industry is going, trying to, to get to that point. 
Yeah, it's a really good point, actually. The the the, the conversation I remember doing uh, a session or presentation on this at the OTT summit last year, and we talked about the the value OTT is having right now is you can give them the optionality of the really interactive experience, but equally the lean back experience is just as important because it just depends on the mode and the interests or the energy or laziness of the the person to to see what they consume in. I think you need to offer both things as, as a media company, really, don't you? You can't just have one or the other. Definitely. With today's fans and everyone is different, uh, you need to be very flexible in your offering. I agree. So let's take a little step back because you, you've now, you know, eight plus years in um, into your journey. And I'm always curious to hear with a company like yours, how it all kicked off. You guys have said you're an Israeli company, which is, seems to be an incredible hotbed for <laughs> technology companies and sports tech companies as well coming through. But just talk us through how you're, uh, I think you're an engineer by trade, if I remember correctly. Um, so talk us through how how you guys got started and what that journey was like. Yeah, so so we're four founders. Uh, we're uh, good friends for 22 years almost, still uh, best friends. Still good and we're friends, all, that's uh, good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you also, as you said, we're all uh, engineers by training. In Israel, when you're 18, you need to go to the army. That's what we do here. But if you're a geek like we are, you can go to the university, you finish your degree first, and then you go and serve in the army for six years in the profession you, you, you studied. So we worked as engineers in the army. And that's basically after the army, we started WC. So that's our first and only real job. Uh, so that's the only thing that we know. Um, and, and we liked sports. We started playing with it as a hobby uh, during the army service, uh, building like scouting services, uh, video scouting. I, I'm a huge basketball fan and one of the other founders, Chai, is a basketball, was a basketball coach. So we built something for video scouting and that's how we met coaches and started to, to work in sports. It was really, really cool. And once we finished our army service, we started thinking what we want to do when we grow up. Do we want to go and work as engineers in Intel or one of these uh, big companies? Or do we want to stay in sports? We And we said quite easily that we want to stay in sports, but we want something that, that can scale, that can become big. Uh, and, and no one knew back then you know, what, what the startup is and, and how things are. Uh, but we started to research. We met a lot of sports entities. Uh, we traveled to meet them in Switzerland and in the States just to hear their pain and, and how they're seeing the market. Uh, and we started to understand that digital is, is starting to grow significantly. We're talking 2012, 2013, uh, starting to grow, where piracy is starting to grow, fan consumption is starting to grow. And we just said, okay, let's let's bet on this, uh, let's bet on this vertical to basically enable the creation of any type of content easily. Um, and uh, yeah, the first challenge was to raise uh, funds. Obviously, it's, sport tech is not what it is today. Every, everyone takes it for granted today that you have a sport and you can find funding. But back then, uh, it was really, really challenging to do it. Um, and ever since the company, and then I think that was the first challenge. The second challenge was to get, obviously, a product market fit and get a good a good client. And, and we were lucky enough uh, to have the NBA to, to hear the pitch and believe in it and really work closely with us to be a design partner, to also build the, build the product and the value and, and really work closely with them uh, to, to bring the, the product to, to a good level of maturity that everyone can trust. And I think from that point on, a lot, a lot of luck and a lot of hard work uh, helped us to, to grow to where we are today. Um, and you know, right now the company is 270 employees, uh, planning to get to about 400 towards the end of the year working globally and uh, and have an, an, an amazing line of investors supporting us along the way, which was also something that was important to us. 
Uh, we brought a lot of people from the sports industry. We have Dan Gilbert, um, the owner of the Cavs that supported us from the A round and still doing an amazing job actively helping us. We have the ownership group of the Dodgers and the Vikings and the 76ers. Um, so, uh, so we have a lot of people from, from the sports industry really helping us. And uh, we had David Stern investing in a company and advising, unfortunately, passed away, but also was super active in helping us. And I think these insights from within the industry uh, from people that are there uh, really help us along uh, in, in growing as well. Yeah, absolutely. You hear that constantly across the industry, just how important it is to have people on the inside because there is also, especially today, maybe less so back then, you had a different problem then where you're trying to explain that there's value in sports tech and you've got something to look at. Whereas now it's, that's not the problem. It's more, there's loads of sports tech things getting thrown around in this area. Why should I look at you guys? If you're a new startup, I mean, starting off. So it's a very different ball game, but a different different problem to, to have. And if you think about it, um, I mean, it's pretty clear that the NBA has built its growth over the last eight years on the flexibility they kept with their highlights rights packages because they weren't, you know, the NFL has historically been super protective on, on copyright and piracy of all of its, of its sports rights, um, whether it's being clipping or otherwise, but the NBA hasn't. NBA had that much more open model, particularly on the highlight side. And I don't know if you guys had a specific involvement in that, or that's just part of the reason they were able to work with you. But that allowed also third parties, um, bloggers, YouTubers, whoever they whoever they were, to create all these incredible clips that really helped grow the game pretty quickly. I'm not sure if you guys had much of a take or involvement in that, but you must have seen that happen uh, along the journey. So you won't get me a complicated. I won't try to say who's right or wrong because I think every, <laughs> no, because because honestly, yeah. I think there's there's a pros and cons in every in everything you're trying to do and whether you want to really maximize something or you want to get a lot of exposure and look maybe for the longer term and really I, I understand the, why every, every organization is acting differently. If we dive specifically into the NBA, I think it's they're looking at it as a very global game which is very different, I think, from the NFL on that aspect. And if you want to be very global, and so it's a different ballgame, and you need to really adapt to every platform, every language, every region, everything is different. And that's what they started to do from day one, way, way before WC was even uh, uh, was an idea. And that was how they started to do. And I think, yeah, I, I definitely think that, that the fact that they have the ability to create any type of content really helps them to, to do it. They're, they're managing now, I think the last number I heard is almost 200 different social media accounts around the world, which is crazy in different languages, different regions, everything. And, and they need to be able to fuel and, and push content into these uh, places. And they're doing, I'm, I'm, I'm an NBA fan. That's my number one sport. So for me, it's, uh, it's, it's amazing to, to follow everything. Um, yeah, absolutely. One of the things that just come, comes to mind talking about that and, I, and, I, 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 um, and your point about there's not a, a fixed model with highlights rights, you know, it depends on um, you know, the situation of the sport and the global reach of the sport. But we've just had two sets of Olympics within the past 12 months. And actually, obviously, there was a number of years, like was that five years between the last Summer Olympic Games and so forth. And one of the things that came up a lot in the channels that I was around was the fact that clips are being shared through social, yet there's obviously complexities around uh, the rights side of that. So I'm getting served a lot of clips that I can't watch because of markets or they're being taken down really quickly. I'm just curious, do you have a particular, um, I guess, thought process on if these clips are being shared, whether it's third party or by major media companies, uh, how insulated these rights need to be if they're getting shared um, through you know, a host of different channels. I'm just curious to what your, th what your thoughts are on that. 
I think here there is a challenge because on one hand, fans want to watch everything and everything that you get, you want to watch it. And you as a fan, rightfully so, don't care about the economics of the industry and what, what rights mean and everything. You see a clip, you want to watch it, whether it's pirated, whether you're allowed to. And that's fine as a fan. But I think we also need, uh, because we're in the business of sport, to understand that media rights are driving uh, a lot of, of that. And I think uh, in the end of the day, it's the broadcaster's role. The, if you're talking about Olympics and, and global competitions, it's uh, in every region, the broadcaster's role to make sure they provide a great experience to fans. And I think whenever a, a league or a, com- or a competition or federation is working and choosing their federation or their, their partners, their broadcast partners in every territory, they need to also think not not only how to maximize the current cycle rights and make the most, they also need to think whether they have the right partner to help them spread the word and help them uh, get the right exposure and right experience and that the broadcaster really wants to do it and, and expose the sports and not just try to, to look at the short term because the cycles are you know, three to four years. And if you don't see a specific sport for three to four years, you're just not going to follow it. There's so much sports going on. Uh, and it's just growing all the time, and and the and just the bar is, is just getting higher. Production is better, like storytelling is better. It's very easy to fall in love, let's say, with, with a new sport and and forget about something else. That I think it's very important to to choose the broadcast partner, and then uh, because I understand, I think the business behind it. For me, it makes sense that that you can't open it up and just have all you can eat, and you can watch it and, and cannibalize the business. Because at the end of the day, the broadcasters have paid a lot of money to have the rights and now they need to, to have a positive ROI. Otherwise, there will be no industry and and that's a problem. Absolutely. No, I, I get your point there. Uh, so back to your journey there, you talked about how um, you guys worked together to put, put it all together and you briefly mentioned that uh, was it the first funding round you were able to get Dan, Gil- Dan Gilbert and others uh, at, the, at the Series A level anyway to start um, funding, um, funding you guys. Just talk us through what, where did, where did you when and when in the journey did you start to get that funding in? How I know obviously you were working on it uh, early on, and then you started to shift and prioritize it. But to travel around the world and do all those things, it, it you have to money. Money goes quickly in these situations. So when did you guys really need to go? Okay, we need to get some serious investment here. When was that moment where you like we have to go for it now? Mm-hmm. So I think once we started to think of the concept, we had a lot of meetings before we started even to build something. We had a lot of meetings with clients uh, and, and talk to them and see there's a product market fit because if we're going to invest our lives in it, we want to make sure we're betting on, on the right direction. So we had a lot of conversation with clients. And once we felt the vibe is right, then uh, we built a, a very quick and dirty uh, demo uh, of what we think and be the experience and how it's going to look like. Uh, we went to started the journey of, of meeting investors. Um, we got a lot of no's, a lot of no's. I don't know how many, but but as as in other things in life, you need one yes. So uh, so you just don't give up. And, uh, and and we try to explain how the industry works, where the potential is, why we think it's going there. And and like you said, once we got it funding, the seed funding, then it enabled us to go and travel even more and 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 develop even more and just continue to scale. And that was an important driver. But we didn't do it. We started from the market, not from the from the R and D and the product. We started from understanding we're solving a real problem or aiming towards solving a real problem that is going to happen. Uh, that was something that we were more focused on when we started. What what were some of the the challenges along the way, though, particularly in those earlier stages that you went through? Obviously, that's the funding's obviously an, an, an ongoing challenge in the sports t- in the tech world, but. Were there some moments where you guys had to overcome, whether it be technologically 
or or maybe it's just the funding side and getting customer buy-in. Was there anything that stood out for you as a major hurdle that you had to overcome? Every day is a, is a hurdle and every day we we're, uh, we're, uh, have a lot of concerns. But yeah, I think it's, you fight so many battles, especially in the beginning, but, but now in parallel, like the technology and product is, the technology is one thing. The product is going to be well received and people will love it is, is the second thing. And then educating the market that they actually need it. It was something that wasn't their automated, automatically created content. And now you need to go and, and, and talk to you know, senior VPs in different organizations and tell them, okay, we understand you just built a new facility. And we understand that you do have 120 people taking care of the, the content creation workflow and you have everything set in place. But we want to offer you something a bit different. And so it's a lot of things and, and not a lot of organization or people want to uh, be the first. They want to see what others are doing. And then, you know, no one got fired for choosing IBM kind of stuff. So so uh, so I think uh, that was a very big challenge and getting the recognition from from the market and, and people to 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 get to build the trust that a small group of people from Israel are actually going to deliver on, on what they promised, which is something which is very new. Uh, and also the commercial side of things, obviously, again, because it's new and you need to justify uh, everything. So, and, and that's something you keep fighting all the time. And then you also have your internal battles that the team grows and needed to, to move from you're doing everything to, to build the right organization, the right culture, that communication, and, and then building globally. So it, it's... Every year is a new year here. Like we say it every time we do every yearly meeting. It was last year was great. Now we forgot about it. Now we have new things to tackle, new things to do, and God knows how we're going to tackle with them. But let's do it together. And so, uh, so every time it's challenging, but the beginning is uh, just on, on every aspect. So I'm not sure I answer the question, but uh, that's how it is. You you just fight fires all the time. Yeah, that sounds that sounds about right. Uh, so we're running towards the end of this, but I'm just curious. You know, we talked about a few of the things you are working on um, with regards to the growth of the business. But should we keep an eye out for anything else coming from you guys over the next couple of years? Have you got any big plans or anything you can share that uh, we should keep an eye out for? Obviously, you're expanding into other markets, um, but what's next? Mm -hmm. so, so it's mainly working and helping, like we said earlier, to, to for, the use, for the organization to to just adapt to the new way sports is consumed with short form highlights, whether it's the OTT space, helping them to acquire new users in new ways. I can give you an example. For example, we have a product, a new product was launched last year, WSC Stories, that is basically an integration uh, with Google search. And that uh, product enables media right owners to get new source of revenue and traffic. So the way uh, it works at our platforms creates in-game or post-game uh, videos in story format, which is the most consumed story format uh, today. And then whenever a search a fan searches for something uh, relevant in Google search, they get a box in the box, they get a score, and you get a story that is updated in real time. So if you tune in at the 30th minute, you get like a few clips that happened so far, and then a call to action button that tells you, hey, click here to go and subscribe and watch the game. So you have very high intent users that were searching for something, they watch the content and then they go and click to subscribe. So that's a whole new way for OTT providers to get high intent traffic they weren't even aware of. So that's something that we launched last year. We already have more than 20 clients. Uh, it's working really well and we're going to, to continue and, and invest in that space and help OTT providers get better experience both in acquisition and retention. The same applies for sports betting that we just, uh, we also last year launched a new product uh, together with FanDuel. And, and others, but FanDuel is the one I can I can mention and helping them to really push 
real-time content to fans. So whenever something interesting happens, they, they know how to segment the users, send the right clip, and the experience is like, hey, this just happened. Click here to go and place your bet, get more stats, do whatever. So as to your question, different variations of using short-form content in all of the growing verticals of sports and really continue and invest and help our, our clients to, to grow their business there. And one final question I suppose is you guys have been built around sports. You're a sports fan. You've got the John Stockton uh, branding behind you, the the jersey behind you. Um, It's in your heart and DNA. Um, Will you ever look to go outside of sports? Ever is a hard word. But I think that right now, I think there is so much to do in the sports industry. I think even if you look again from the economic side of things, media rights of sports are the most expensive thing in the world. And there is a reason for it. And I think there is a lot to do in the sports industry and a lot of untapped opportunities that we're planning to, to grow into. So for the, again, for the foreseeable future, three, four, five years, uh, we're not planning to, to go into other verticals. We're very focused on sports. And that's, as you said, part of our DNA, but also part of our expertise. We build something because we really think we understand the market and not just the product, not just the tech. We understand the market, we understand the economics, we understand the business behind it, which is super important. Um, so as of now, we're staying in sports and going to, to live uh, sports games. So that's fun. Good stuff. Well, look, Daniel, you and your team have built a business that is really powering the, the evolution and revolution of media consumption in the sports industry. So a big congratulations to you and the team for what you've built and look forward to seeing what's next. It seems like it's only just the beginning with, with, with the marketplace and what you guys have been building. So thanks very much for finding some time to speak with us. Really, really appreciate it. Nate, appreciate it. It was fun. Thank you very much.